Here we are today in the old hall of Queen's College. Uh, I'm speaking today to the Cambridge and Business Professionals Club uh, and I'll be sharing how to thrive or survive in a recession or shrinking market. But what an amazing environment to be in as, as we're here. This hall, the whole building dates back to the 15th century. Uh, and to come for a lunch here on itself is, is, is an honour. But to be here speaking to such a prestigious club that have been meeting since regularly since the 1950s, how to survive and thrive in a recession or shrinking economy is really important to everybody these days. And so I'll be sharing some of those points uh, in about a 20-25 minute speech. It's Mike Green, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Rich. One of the things I first want to check is that everyone can hear me, because if I put the other mic on, I might deafen a few people. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Yes, okay. Well, the first thing I thought, um, the guys and I came in here earlier, and it, I was just blown away. I have had uh, the pleasure and the honour to speak in many places around the world, but coming in this room, it just takes your breath away, and uh, so I am honoured, and I am pleased to be asked to speak here. And um, it's always strange to introduce yourself, but uh, I, I, I'll give you the really, really brief summary of it. Summary of it. Um, I uh, grew up in, in what you might call poverty. Uh, so I sometimes say to people, um, I lived in a caravan for the first four or five years of my life, and then we moved into a house. It was very exciting to move into a house. And uh, I then say, and I got my own bed at the age of 11. They say, you mean your bedroom? I said, no, I shared a bed with two brothers till I was 11. I didn't get my own bedroom until I left home. And even then, I went back to not having my own bed because I was with my wife. So uh, 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 I grew up there, and I went to a school in Peterborough called Bretton Woods School. I don't know if anyone's heard of it but it was once called a demonised depository for social waste. Uh, so, uh, needless to say, it wasn't the best school, but it was one where, even in that environment, people, the teachers, wanted to teach you. And if you were a student that wanted to learn, that was all they were looking for. And I am very passionate about education. Uh, and so for me, I see the school that we go to as being a bit like passing a driving test. We get that test, but then after that, we really learn to drive. And so for me, the real lessons in life come after school. And so I set about trying to be get better, to learn from people. Uh, and I love the saying that uh, I, I, I saw further by standing on the shoulders of giants. And so I would read avidly. There was no internet back then. And I would read and I would read. And um, today I said I would talk about growing in a recession or as Disney would call it, observe the masses and do the opposite. And there's nothing wrong with being part of the masses, but I remember an old boss I had of mine once, a guy called John Irish, who was chairman of, of Spa, the, the corner shop retailer. And we were in a meeting, and my boss at the time, a guy called Darren, uh, John walked in, and he was a big character. He had a lot of uh, presence about him. And he said, how are we doing, guys? And Darren said, well, well we're, we're, we're better than average, John. And John just lost it. He threw his coat down. He said, average? I won't say the word, effing average. He said, who wants to be average? Average is the bottom of the top, the top of the bottom, the cream of the crap. And ever since then, I thought, we should aspire to be more than that. If we're going to do anything, let's aspire to be the best at what we do, to, to learn from the best if we're not the best and emulate what they, um, what they do. And so, you know, when I think about recession, one of the things I don't want to do is follow the experts. 
Because you know the definition of an expert, an X is a has-been and a spurt is a drip under pressure. So who wants to listen to the experts? But more importantly, because often the experts got it wrong if you look through history. They didn't predict 2008-9, they didn't predict COVID. When COVID came around, they couldn't predict how long it might last, what impact it would have during and post that. Uh, and so the problem is, I think sometimes with recession, we talk ourselves into recession. And as a behavioural profiler, because I carried on learning after school and I did become a behavioural profiler with Belbin, Cambridge Myers, Myers Briggs, Thomas International. Um, and I did go on. I spoke at every school within 20 miles of Peterborough. I spoke at a lot of universities and I got awarded an honorary doctorate for education with Anglia Ruskin. And sometimes people who went to my schools or people I know locally who um, perhaps are a bit anti-education, they will say, you didn't need that mic, we didn't need that mic, why do you always promote education? And I said, well, you know, 70% of the world's millionaires and billionaires never went to university. But you know what, they probably wasted a lot of time by not doing that. And to me, if you've got that guttural energy, ambition and drive and a focus uh, within you already, and you can add education, you will become unstoppable. So to be here today in this wonderful um, base of education respected around the world uh, is to me bringing together the, the, the great things I like. One is business and one is education. Um, and one of the things I talk about is when something happens, and I used to work with every newspaper in the UK, I had a global research business uh, which I sold after I appeared on a program called Secret Millionaire. And um, but I used to work with News International and Mirror Group newspapers uh, and all, all the UK newspapers. And what they used to say to me, and because I, I used to ask is, what is it that people like about your newspaper? Who is your target audience? Why do they read the Mail or the Sun or the Times or the Telegraph? And what they, I said, is it for the news? And they said, increasingly, we don't read newspapers to learn about the news because it's already old news by the time we get it. We read the newspapers because we want to understand how people like us are interpreting that news. Because each newspaper will interpret it from a slightly different perspective. And actually, people are lazy. So they don't just want the news, they want to be told what they should think about the news. So that by the time they get to work in the morning, they've already got their opinion. It's been given to them. And, you know, lots of times our main problem isn't our problem. Our main problem is our perspective on that problem. And, you know, in effect, our opinion or other people's opinions more likely. And um, seems too, too um, salubrious a group to give the quote I sometimes give about opinions. Um, but I'll do a cleaner version. Opinions are like behinds. We all have one and most of them are full of and I'll leave you to finish that quote. Um, so don't just take people's opinions. And I, I, I always look for metaphors and stories because I still mentor many businesses. Any one time I'm mentoring 40 to 50 businesses every single month. And I normally do a six or a 12 month program with them, with their boards, with their founders and so on. Um, and what I want to talk about is examples that you can put into your head. So as a behavioral profiler, can I put a few hooks in that might change the way that you look at things? And I love the two stories that come to mind. One is a really quick poem, and I'll give you the abbreviated version. It is two men imprisoned behind bars. 
One sees mud, the other sees stars. So they both got the same outlook. But if you're looking down, you'll see negative. If you're looking up, you'll see stars. And so it is often our perspective, and we can change our perspective, or we can look at why is it that I see negative and others see positive. What is it that the people who are seeing positive see that I don't see? And we can't change what's going on in a market, but we can change our perspective. Therefore, we can change how we view it and how we let it affect our behavior. And a lot of people say that that success is 95% attitude and 5% aptitude. But it's still the marriage of those two things. And the other story that I'd share is, um, it's an old fable of the two shoe salesmen sent off to check out a new market. And it was way back when there wasn't even telephones, there were telegrams. And the first uh, salesman, he studies, he does his research, and three days after being there, he sends a telegram. And the telegram says, research complete unmitigated disaster they don't even wear shoes and so you know that was his perspective a few hours later the second salesman sends his telegram and he says research complete what an amazing opportunity we have they don't even wear shoes yet uh, and so you know when we hear about recession what we're hearing is someone's interpretation or the criteria that someone has decided qualifies us for a recession but even in recession even in something as big as covid things improve you know the way that uh, medical companies and pharmaceutical companies could come together during covid to create cures in such incredible times and in times of war design always improves so you know Recession may or may not be a term that we can talk about it, but what I will tell you, having worked with thousands of companies, um, is that those that have written goals, written business plans, always, always outperform those that don't. And many companies have a written business plan or a goal, and whether we're retired or we're still early in our business, have we got written goals? And people say, it's all in my head. And I say, yes, but I'm a behavioral profiler. Let me tell you, if you've got high or low blood sugar, your head's going to give you a different perspective. If someone cut you up on the way driving here, your head's going to go to a different place. You can easily forget what's in your head. You can easily get distracted from what's in your head. Write it down. And there's been lots of research done that shows that the 5% that have written goals earn more combined than the 95% that don't have written goals. So do you have written goals? And so many companies I work with still, I say, what, is the, what are the goals? Oh, we're looking for 2% growth. But, you know, okay, is that the goal, just to get 2% growth? Why wouldn't we go for 20% goal growth? What, what is someone else doing differently, better, best, that we can emulate? And also, it's not just 2%. How are we going to get that 2%? Is that coming from new products? Uh, and how are we going to do this? And, you know, that's so obvious. We all kind of get that. And yet, you know, I, 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 w I would go around the room and ask you to ask yourself, have you written down what 2003 is going to do for you? What you're going to do and achieve and deliver for you, for your community, for your family in 2023? One of the things I had a mentor, and he was a head of corporate restructuring for KPMG. And back in the 90s, he used to charge himself out at about £18,000 a day. That was back when that was a lot of money. Uh, and, and he'd say, the problem is, Mike, I go into one of these big companies, these big FTSE 500 companies, and I'll charge them a couple of million pounds to be there for a few weeks with my team. And he said, I give them 20 folders of output. He said, but because it's in 20 folders, there's the research, the analysis, the recommendations, the reports. But because there's 20 folders, no one's going to read it. Because they don't read it, they can't possibly act on it. And because they don't, can't act on it, they won't ever deliver it. 
but they'll call us back in a few years to do another strategic review. He said, I wish I could do the 20 folders were for thinking, but then just give them one page, a one page plan. What's our current state? Where are we today? What's our future state? Where, where do we want to be in two years, three years, five years? What areas do we need to work on? And what actions do we need to take in each area to get from where we are to where we want to be? And this was about 18 years ago. And I said, I'm going to do that. And he said, no, no, it's terrible consultancy, Mike, because you could teach someone that in about an hour. Uh, and you can't charge them five or six million pounds to do that. And I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And uh, 11 years ago, I wrote a book called Failure Breeds Success, which talked about we're not going to get through life and succeed in anything worthwhile without some degree of failure. But failure is not the opposite of success. It's one of the ingredients of success. It's actually necessary almost. Everything we do, we failed at to start with. When we were learning to walk as a child, we got up, fell down, got up, fell down, got up, fell down. Our desire to walk was so strong that we still got up every time we fell down. And, you know, we go through life learning to ride a bike. We might fall off, we might fall off, we might fall off. It's a, if as a parent, you stop your child falling off, there's a good chance they'll never learn to ride a bike. We have to learn to fall off in order to learn to ride. And Stuart, uh, my um, mentor, would say to me, Mike, how's the business going? I say, it's going great, Stuart. It's growing here, it's growing in Australia, it's growing in America, it's going really good. He said, great, I want you to climb a mountain. I said, what? And he said, I want you to climb a mountain. He said, the problem with you, Mike, you're too intense. He said, and you're so in the business that I need to get you away from the business to get perspective on the business. And he said, so I want you to climb a mountain. So I said, okay. I said, what if I don't? He said, well, you need another mentor then. Uh, and you can stay broke. And I, said, I climbed a mountain. I climbed several mountains. And when I came back, he'd say, what did you learn? And I'd say, I, I, I learned that I'd get so far up and I had to go back because the valley went down before it went up again. And I didn't like going backwards. He said, so was going backwards failure? I said, no, it was part of the journey to get to the next peak. And actually, in going down, we have a thing in, in mountain climbing called climb high, sleep low. When we climb higher than we're going to sleep, when we do sleep, we create more red blood cells. Those, those red blood cells give us more oxygen, which enable us to climb higher the next day. He said, so is that a bit like business? I said, yeah. He said, great, next year I want you to cross an ocean. <laughs> and I said, I said Stuart, I, I, I'm a bit scared of water. And he said, we're all scared of everything until we learn how to manage that environment. And we learn the skills necessary to survive that environment. So I remember going down to Clipper, which is run by Sir Robin Knox Johnson, who twice circumnavigated the globe. And we're there, we're in a little U-shape. And one of the guys sitting beside me, he said, what training do we get? And the guy said, well, he said, we're all novices. We've never sailed before. And he said, right, the first day is in the classroom. We tell you a little about, about the route you're going to take and what to expect. He said, the second day is sea survival. We do that in a swimming pool and we teach you how to fall out and, you know, just, just getting used to falling off of something. He said, in the third day, we look in, on the uh, weather charts and we find the biggest storm we can and we head for it. And there was this kind of awkward silence and a nervous laugh from the guy who had asked the question. And he said, yeah, but we're, we're, we're all novices. Why would we head for a storm? And he said, because we can't prepare you on calm waters. And that was another metaphor for life. If you avoid all the storms, all the recessions, all the challenges, then you're not going to be prepared for when they do come. And then what I learned when I, I did, we did London, Brest, Brest, Rio, and on the stretch between Brest in France and Rio, it was six weeks, it, it was a really long stretch because we got stuck in the doldrums for nine days. But we also went through a lot of storms. You know, we had people with teeth knocked out, broken arms. The 
sea was trying to kill us at every opportunity. But you know, the boats are made for that. And what I learned was we always aimed for storms. Why would you aim for a storm? Because if you aim for a storm, if you hit it right, you can use the energy of that storm to catapult you through. So when everyone else is aiming for those calm waters in a recession, if you observe the masses and do the opposite, and you think, I know what to do, we're prepared because we had a plan. We trained our people. We're going to aim for that storm and we're going to whip around the edge of it and use it to catapult us on with speed so we got the winds behind us. And so everything that scares people can be turned on its head and used to its advantage. Another benefit of recession is less people advertise. Now, I used to have a market research consultancy uh, here, America, Australia, New Zealand. I worked in 18 European countries. And what I noticed is during any recession or downturn, less people spent money in marketing. So marketing costs came down. And if you then did spend in marketing at that point, you had more noise because there was less chatter going on. So your money could go further and make more noise. So those that do invest and observe the masses and do the opposite and do do more marketing in a recession rather than see that as an easy uh, spend to cut, they'll grow and come out of a recession stronger thereafter. But if I looked at one thing that is the most important thing that I talk about, how to survive in a recession or how to thrive in a recession, it's always people. You show me a great business, a great performing business, it will also always be a business that has great people and looks after those people. So one of the things I often teach is it's just a simple loop. How do we attract, train, motivate and retain the best people? But once you've done that once, it's not, you don't just end. You've got to, you've got to keep reattracting the people to stay there. Otherwise, someone will steal them. And then you've got to retrain them, re-motivate them if you're going to retain them. And it goes on and on and on. And I just want to share a few examples of that. And uh, uh, I've never got to meet Jack Welsh, but I wish I had. Jack Welsh, when he ran General Electric, made it the largest company in the world. He was called Neutron Jack, though, because one of the things he said is every year... I want you to cull the bottom 10% of the business. So they had 440,000 employees when Jack Welsh started. So every year is going to get rid of 40,000 or so people. That's really tough. But let me ask you this. If you've got a business and tomorrow you had to get rid of 10%, so 1 in 10, 2 in 20, if you didn't get rid of 10% of your employees tomorrow, you're going to go bust. In the time it took me to say that, you know which people you'd get rid of. And I would ask you, if you can think of them that quickly, why are they still in your business? And Jack Welsh would say, you're abusing them to keep them because the fact that you could think of them that quickly means you don't respect them and they're not going to be part of your future. You should set them free to be amazing somewhere else. And it's your mistake for keeping them or taking them on in the first place if they're that dispensable or the first person that would go. So you need to get rid of them elegantly and intelligently and pay more than you have to pay to pay a price so you don't make those same mistakes again. I did get to meet a guy called Kip Tyndall. He had a different approach. He ran a business called Container Store that for 20 years in a row had double-digit growth. It's a bit like... Um, uh, trying to remember the name, not uh, Habitat or Lakeland business in the UK. But he paid twice the going rate. And I was uh, doing this tour with him around Phoenix and uh, Arizona. And uh, I was talking about consumer changes, consumer trends. And he was talking about people, the best people. And he said, I pay twice the going rate. And one of the audience said, but how do you make money if you're paying twice the going rate? We spend 10% of our sales on labor and if you're spending twice as much, how are you making any money? He said, I also spend 10% of my uh, sales on labor. And he said, but how can that be if you're paying them twice as much? 
He said, when you get great people, great people are at least three times as effective as good people. Good people are at least three times as effective as average people. How many average people do you employ? And so paying twice the going rate, he said, I'm not having to re-recruit, there's a cost there. I'm not having to constantly retrain, there's a cost there. And I'm not having to lose people all the time who are my best people. Um, and, and start again. And then the last one was the opposite again. So there's different people strategies. Michael Abrashoff, he, he wrote How to Turn Your Ship Around. He was the most successful uh, captain in the American Navy. And I, I shared some conference stages with him. And he said, when you've got 900 people on a destroyer, once you set off, you can't, if you sack them, what are you going to do? Throw them overboard? You've got them for a nine-month tour of duty. So your duty then is to find out what's going to motivate them. Where do they come from? Why did they choose that job? Why are they there with you? What can you do? Are they in the wrong job but the right, the right business? And what can you do to make them inspired and drive that? And there's different ways to look at it, but people are at the heart of every great business. And the last sort of thing I talk about with people is um, winning teams only have the best players. And the key word there is only. They don't have some good players, Winning teams only have the best players. You know, you can be a world-class footballer like Ronaldo, but if you stop playing for the team, you need to be cut from the team because you're starting to affect the team. And you don't have to only have the best players, but the degree to which you accept average or good or okay will slow your business down. And in a good market, you can get by carrying a few people. But in a recessionary market or a down market, if you're accepting average you could be putting a nail in your own business's coffin. Now, when my oldest uh, daughter, who's now 24, lives in Cambridge, actually, and she loves it here, um, she's doing cognitive neuroscience, and she did a psychology degree before that, um, and they got into behavioural profiling because it's always been a big part of what I do. Why do people do what they do? What can I do to make them do things differently? Why might they do things differently? And she was at home sick, and I'd said to my wife, Jules, I'm going to work at home tomorrow, because uh, I need to write a presentation for an Advantage Group conference that I'm speaking at in two days' time. And I just, I don't know where I'm going with it. I, don't know, I haven't even thought about it. So I'm going to work at home tomorrow so I don't get any interruptions. And so that was great. We can do that. 2,000 people going out to Portugal with Advantage Group. Uh, and it's in travel agency, which wasn't a big area for me. Um, so I'm there. And literally that morning, I'm thinking, great, I'm going to get into this presentation. I'm going to think about what it is I want to say. And Jules says... Rose is sick, Mike. Uh, you're going to have to look after her. I said, Jules, I'm here to finish this conference speech, to write this conference speech. I haven't got time to look after Rosie. Now, I love my wife partly because she doesn't put up with any rubbish from me, and I adore strong women, you know, uh, and she is exactly that. And we're 30 years married this year, 35 years together. But she said, Mike, deal with it. I'm going. I'm taking Amelia to school. And there I am with Rosie, uh, who's supposedly ill. Two minutes after Julia leaves, she comes down and says, Dad, can we play? I thought, oh, so she's not that ill. And listen, I, I don't mind admitting this, but what I said to her was this. Um, I was looking through this travel magazine at the time, and I saw a world map. And I tore it out, and I tore it into about 50 pieces. And I said, Rosie, Daddy's busy at the moment, but I gave, I gave her some sellotape, and I said, if you can put this world map back together, when you do that, I'll stop and we'll play and we can go outside and play. Oh, good. And off she went. She was very happy. I felt a bit bad because it's a bit of an evil thing to do, to give a seven-year-old a, a, a map torn into 50 pieces. And she came back about 10 minutes later, and the map was together. She's only seven. I thought, my God, I knew she was a bright child, but what on earth 
How on earth has she put this map together? I said, Rosie, that's amazing. It's perfect. How did you do that? And she said, it was easy, Daddy. There were people on the back, and when the people were put together, the world was all right. And, and I'll leave you with that thought, recession or not, growth market or not, if you get the right people and you put the people together, your world will be all right. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah.